Right before he died, the British neurologist and author Oliver Sacks, he wrote a series of short essays on what he was thinking as he approached the end of his life and some of the profound lessons about life that he'd learned along the way. Those essays were later published as a small book with a simple title, Gratitude. It's a beautiful book, and as usual, Sachs has some really wonderful insights along the way. But there's a strange paradox in what he has to say. On the one hand, it's clear that he feels immense gratitude, not only for what friends and family have done for him, but for the sheer gift of life itself. At one point, for instance, he talks about the day that he discovered that he had a rare tumor in his eye that had metastasized in his liver. It's a rare form of cancer, and he says that he was unlucky that it afflicted his body. And yet, nevertheless, as he's talking about it, he also says, I feel grateful that I have been granted nine years of good and healthy productivity since the original diagnosis. And then later in that same essay, he talks about how grateful he feels for his life in general. I cannot pretend, he says, that I am without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much and I have given something in return. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. And that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. Like I said, it's a, it's a really beautiful expression of gratitude. But there's something strange about it. Because Sachs says that he feels grateful for the privilege of life itself, and he recognizes the nine years he lived after his diagnosis. He recognizes them as years that had been granted to him. That's the language he uses. But Oliver Sacks does not believe in God. He used to describe himself as an old Jewish atheist. So why does he think of life as a gift? Who granted him those nine years? To whom, you might ask, is he giving thanks? You could ask the same thing of the famous atheistic scientist, Richard Dawkins, who once described his own feelings of gratitude for the gift of existence. It's a feeling of sort of an abstract gratitude that I am alive to appreciate these wonders. When I look down a microscope, it's the same feeling. I am grateful to be able to appreciate these wonders. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to dismiss the, the genuine reality of the gratitude that Sachs and Dawkins feel as they reflect on their lives. I think they're right to feel as they do. I admire them for it. But it does seem rather strange to talk about being thankful when you've got no one to thank. It seems odd to describe life as a gift when you don't believe in a giver. To quote the ancient church father, Theodoret of Cyrus, why speak of the fruits of the earth and the products of streams, rivers, and the seas? Do you not perceive these gifts which you carry around in your hands? In your enjoyment of these, can you forget the giver? We are right to feel gratitude and wonder for the mysteries and the unearned blessings of life. But we are wrong to forget their giver. 
Uh, Thankfully, prayers like the general thanksgiving don't let us forget. The general thanksgiving reminds us exactly who it is that deserves our gratitude. It begins by fixing our attention not on the gift, but on the giver. It's right there in the opening invocation of the prayer. Almighty God, Father of all mercies. I'd like to focus particularly on that phrase, Father of all mercies. What does this tell us about God? Why use that title when we're giving thanks? Now, some modern people object to calling God Father. Some people will point out that that the language of fatherhood, it's been corrupted by, by bad and abusive fathers. And that for those who have experienced abuse, calling God Father can conjure up negative or traumatic experiences. Unfortunately, the experience of abuse from fathers is very real, and it's far more common than it should be. But instead of associating God with those bad images of fatherhood, we need to try to understand what the Bible is communicating about God with this language. Why does the Bible describe God as a father? What are we supposed to understand from this word? If you read the Old Testament, you'll notice that references to God as father are actually relatively rare. Not to say that it never happens. God is occasionally described as a father in his relationship with the people of Israel. In the book of Jeremiah, for example, God is quoted as saying, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. The prophet Isaiah likewise uses the language of father when he speaks of God's love and care for Israel. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. But that kind of language, it's not all that common in the Old Testament. And Jesus, on the other hand, uses the language of God as father all the time. And it's in his teaching, I think, that we can see how the Bible understands God as Father and why this term is such a fitting way to talk about the generosity of God as a giver. Just think about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, he tells his disciples that they don't need to worry themselves about things like food and clothing and other necessary provisions. And then to illustrate his point, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. In this passage, Jesus calls God Father, and what he associates with that language is care and provision. Fathers, at least good fathers, are meant to provide for their children's needs. If their child needs something to wear— Good fathers give them clothes. If they need food, they feed them. And children should feel safe, and they should feel cared for by their fathers. They shouldn't spend time, as Jesus says, worrying about where they'll get everything they need. They should feel relaxed and at peace, knowing that they can depend on their dads. That's obviously what Jesus means when he talks about God as Father. It's why at the end of that passage, he tells his listeners not to worry about any of their physical needs because, he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
And then just a little later in his sermon, Jesus uses the same language once again to talk about being confident and asking God for things in prayer. Ask, he says, and it will be given to you. And then, again, he illustrates what he's saying by talking about fathers. Which of you, he says, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But perhaps the most famous time that Jesus describes God as a father is not in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in a parable that he tells in the Gospel of Luke. I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about. It's the story about the younger son who asks his father for his inheritance and then goes and wastes it all in a foreign country and then comes back humiliated and begging to be hired as a servant in his father's household. It's usually referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, but the only character who appears in every scene of the story isn't the younger son, it's actually the father. He's the real focus of the story. And the whole reason Jesus tells the story in the first place is to illustrate, to teach us something about what God is like. What Jesus is saying is that God is like a father, but not just any father. Not an aloof or uncaring or distant or abusive father. No, God is like a father who loves his sons so much that he gladly gives them half his property when they ask him for it. And when they abandon him and wrong him, his only response is to welcome them back with open arms, to lavish them with mercy and kindness. That's why it's fitting for the general thanksgiving to begin the way that it does, by calling on God as the Father of all mercies. Because that's exactly who God is. He's the Father who delights to give good gifts to His children and to embrace them with mercies that they don't deserve. But the generosity of God doesn't end there. Because when we call God Father, we're not just referring to the kindness that he shows to his creatures or his generosity in giving gifts to his people. When we call God Father, we're actually making a claim about who he is in his own eternal life. Now, let me explain what I mean. Way back in the fourth century, there was a big debate in the church about whether or not the Son of God was eternal in the same way that God the Father is eternal. Now, some people thought that the Son was not eternal, that he was created by the Father. There, there was once a time when the Son did not exist. Others, such as Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, strongly disagreed. When Jesus speaks of God as his Father, such as he does, for instance, in his prayer in John 17, when he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, he's not referring there to a relationship that one time didn't exist and now does. As Athanasius says, there wasn't a time before God was Father. 
God has always been Father. There was never a time when he was anything else. That's what Christians mean. When we say in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. To say that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father is to say that there was never a time when God the Father was not giving the gift of his own life to another. To call God Father, Athanasius said, is to say something about who God is in his very nature, who he has been from all eternity. Now, later theologians in the Middle Ages developed this idea even further. In the 12th century, a Scottish theologian named Richard of St. Victor, he wrote a book called On the Trinity. And in this book, he asked what may seem like a rather straightforward question. Why is God a trinity? Why does God exist as three persons rather than just one person? And the answer Richard gave to that question was both simple and incredibly profound. The reason, he says, that God exists as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is because God is good and because God is love. God is good, and to be good, by definition, Richard says, is to be generous, to give generously to others. But God isn't just good. God, for Richard, is goodness itself. God is supreme goodness, which means that there can never be a moment or situation or occasion when God is not giving. What's more, Richard says, because God is supremely good, he eternally, he always gives the very greatest gift that he can possibly give, which is the gift of himself, his own life. Because of his supreme goodness and his supreme love, the Father eternally gives the gift of his very own being, his very own life to the Son. And the Son eternally receives that gift and responds with perfect love. And it doesn't stop there, because true love isn't content with the joy of giving to another. True love isn't jealous. It wants to be shared. Which is why, Richard says, God eternally exists, not only as Father and Son, but as Spirit as well. For the Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the one who shares in their eternal happiness of giving and receiving, in their eternal life of goodness and love. And all of that is implied in what we say when we refer to God as Father. To call God Father is not just to say that He is good, but that he is, in fact, goodness itself. God isn't just generous sometimes. He is generosity itself. And God doesn't just give some gifts. He gives the gift of his very own being. Because God is not only Father. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a being of endless goodness and love whose eternal life consists in nothing other 
than giving and receiving, loving and being loved. That is the one to whom we owe our gratitude. That is the one to whom we are giving thanks when we pray, Almighty God, Father of all mercies.